welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. We just had a great chat with uh, Malcolm Turnbull. Former Prime Minister of Australia, author of the brand new memoir, actually number one bestseller in Australia for the last couple of weeks, A Bigger Picture. We speak about his early career, we go into politics, and at the end we talk about what's happening right now in the world and how things are going to change in the future. Good afternoon, Malcolm. Hello there. Good hey there. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Very well. Great to meet you. We've been looking forward to this one for oh, quite good. a while. Actually. We actually loved your, your book and I think we got a, we've listened to a few interviews with you on a few different podcasts at the moment and I think the things that we're really interested in is maybe slightly different to what some of the other okay. podcasts sure. have been focusing on. Sure. But um, as Astro was saying, we are a podcast that looks at uh, books, a lot of it in personal development, career, finance, business, mm. all these kinds of mm. things. Yeah. Uh, We'd like to start off with, was there any books, particularly in your early career or in politics, that were quite influential in in how you ran things? Um, Not really. Uh, Not sort of like a management book or or, uh, anything like that. I guess a book that was... um, that was quite influential was uh, Anti-Fragile, the... um, uh, Nassim Taleb, isn't it? That, that, yeah, that's right. Yeah. ears pricked up. That's one of his favourites. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's sort of, it, it's one of those books that that kind of um, confirmed something I'd already thought, and you know, provided a sort of intellectual hinterland for something that was quite intuitive. Mm. <laughs> um, and you know, this is the whole point of, that I, you know, used to make a lot which is that we, you know, because we live in a time of unprecedented change, both in scale and pace, and so the tenor of the time is volatility, uh, and there's nothing you can do to change that. You know, that's that's the environment. So what you've got to do is make sure that you, your government, your country, your company, is as resilient and agile as possible. And that term anti-fragile was, was very helpful because it basically says well you want to be in a position where like a muscle you know change uh makes you stronger as opposed to being like a piece of you know of of, of porcelain that any sort of uh, disruption will cause you to break mm. it's funny you say that Malcolm, because when, when reading your book i really got the feeling of andy fragile with uh how you did your career so i remember from the book it talks about a greek mythological character called hydra and it lurked deep in the waters and it had multiple heads. And when you cut off one of its heads, it grows two back. Mm. So over time, it's happy to get its its head cut off and start afresh and start mm. something new. And over time, you get more and more heads. And if I look at your career, for example, you started in journalism. And then after that, you moved into finish your law degree. And then you were very successful in law. And then from that, you kind of let law put law aside and then you went into investment banking. And same in politics. So I get that feeling of anti-fragile, like Hydra, getting more and more heads as your career kind of mm-hmm. progressed. Yeah. Yeah, well, I guess so. I mean, I, you know, I've had a, a series of different careers. Um, you know, I, I like to do different things. I mean, I like different challenges. I'm naturally inquisitive. I think if I were to say what is, you know, I'm 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 really hopeless at self-analysis, by the way, so, <laughs> uh, which which is makes me completely, uh, you know, in uh, this is why I would never fit in as a millennial. But the uh, 
I'm not as introspective as I probably should be. But anyway, I would say this. I'm very curious. I've always wanted to learn something new, and that is a great help, I think. I mean, curiosity is a really valuable thing, and you want to encourage that. So, you know, all my life, whenever I've uh, sat down with people, um, I've always, you know, taken lots of notes. You know, my iPad was a constant companion with me when I was in politics to, you know, really to sit down if I had a room of experts, as I often did, you know, because one of the great things about being in Parliament is really smart people want to talk to you uh, and tell you things. And, you know, I take a lot of notes and so you learn, I've learned, I love learning about new things. So that's important because a lot of, you know, a lot of people aren't like that, which is a big mistake. Yeah, curiosity is an absolutely vital thing. And uh, yeah. it's, it seems like a lot of successful people always cultivate that curiosity. Yeah. Uh, what you, are the... You know, it's also important, Adam, if I could just add <laughs> to this, uh, from a sort of societal point of view, um, social point of view and social cohesion point of view, and something I've always encouraged is cultural curiosity. So, you know, we live in a country where the people, you know, our friends and neighbours, classmates, whatever, workmates, are very likely from a different background to us. They might be an Indigenous person, they might be, you know, their family might be from Greece or China or India or whatever. And, you know, I've always been very interested and curious about different cultures, religions, backgrounds, family stories. And, you know, that's something I, I found very, very helpful and rewarding. I mean, I, I used to, you know, I, I, I still do, but I always have got a lot of public transport. And it's amazing, uh, you know, if you're on a, you know, it's got to be a, a trip of more than five minutes, I suppose. But, but you know, it's amazing sometimes to sit down to people, people and they'll just literally tell you the story of their life. I mean, I remember getting a bus at sort of just up the hill from Watson's Bay back to uh, Edgecliff where my office was. So I don't know, maybe it's a 25-minute bus ride. And I was sitting next to an old guy and he literally gave me the story of his life in 25 minutes, which you could have turned into a movie. <laughs> you know, it, was just, it was just staggering. So, yeah. I love that that curiosity. So you've got both the curiosity for learning new things, but then also the curiosity for people and mm. different cultures. What yeah. other um, skills or attributes do you think were were vital in your in your career? Or if it's easier, if you don't want to talk yourself up too much, what advice would you give to other people mm. in terms of things that they should do earlier? Well, I, well, look, I, I don't know. I mean, in t- you know, everyone's got to chart their own course. I I. Uh, I think clearly determination is is vitally important. I'm, I've never taken anything for granted. I've never had a sense of entitlement. You know, um, Paddy Manning wrote a, a book about me called Born to Rule, which I, I don't, I mean, a catchy title, I suppose. But, you know, it was, I mean, he wrote it out of the clips. It wasn't particularly insightful, I don't think, because he didn't really, didn't know me. But, <laughs> but the, no, I'm saying, but the title, Born to Rule, I mean, that is, I, that is literally the reverse of how I've, I've never regarded myself as entitled to anything. So that's quite a good place to start. So you've got to start and say, right, well, I want to do X. So what do, what do I have to do to get to X? Mm-hmm. You know, we can't assume that, uh, you know, it's going to fall into my lap. Mm. That's right. 
and it's kind of like that if it's meant to be it's up for me and there is there's quite a few times in your book where you, you made a cold call and invented mm. an, an opportunity out of out of nothing which we really loved mm. um one of the things i want to ask you is how's the reception for the the book being given by the, the different say media agencies and who they're owned by and and the differences in in opinion of, of how the book's been well i think it's been look well the book's selling well so the publishers are very happy. Uh, it's been the number one bestseller for two weeks, which has only been on sale for two, two and a bit weeks. So, so that's good. Uh, well, I mean, the, my predictable uh, critics have been predictably critical, you know. So the News Corp outlets, first they, you know, got a pirated copy of the book and, and broke the copyright and, you know, published great slabs of it before anyone else. Uh, they bagged it unmercifully, um, all of which I think has helped sales. Um, <laughs> I think that's a good thing. And, uh, you know, <laughs> 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 but they're just, this is the sort of professional Turnbull-hating brigade. Uh, in terms of the rest of the media, I mean, it's been, a, you know, it's been, I think, well, I don't know, the, the reviews have been, I think, on balance positive, but, I mean, mm. Everyone's got a view. Some people object to some bits in the book, but you know that's look. It's a big book. There's a lot in it. A lot of people in it. A lot of events, and inevitably they'll be contentious, right? So mm. it reminds a little bit of um, the spy catcher trial and the negative publicity, right? There's no negative of buying a book, so publicity can only do good thing for a, a book. Oh, yeah. well, the spy catcher trial is that. I mean, as you know, if Peter writes. Memoir, a spy catcher, which was basically a load of old cobblers because it had all been published before. If Peter's memoir had just been published without any objection, mm. it would have done well to sell fifty thousand copies. You know, which is still a lot of books, but you know, is not huge. It sold millions. It sold like I can't remember now, like three and a half million copies mm. entirely because the British government tried to ban it. I mean, if it, you know, the I had. I had a, a friend, an ex-CIA agent, actually, you know, around that time who I'd got to know and he, he used to write a bit, uh, a guy called uh, Miles Copeland. When I say he's a friend, uh, he was an acquaintance, probably a better way to describe it. And he, he just said, oh, I wish someone would try to ban my books, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's called the, uh, the Streisand effect where Barbara Streisand, she, her address was public and she tried to have it blocked so that no one knew where she lived. But because she was trying so hard to get it blocked, all of a sudden everyone wanted to know where she lived. So there's like helicopters flying over oh. and filming her. So the more she tried to block it, uh, the more people actually want yeah. to know it. So it's similar yeah, to Yeah, well, that's to right. That. The minute you tell people they can't have something, they want it. <laughs> uh, no. It's absolutely the opposite of um, some of the Murdoch-owned media. And it was quite interesting hearing about the... I feel like in the book it wasn't explicitly mentioned how the money flows from the fossil fuel lobby through to the Murdoch media and then somehow influences politics. But when I was reading, I was, I was just... I'm not sure. I don't think it's all about money, mm. to be honest, Adam. I think the, I think that the, um, you know, the question here's so this is the question: Why has the populist right of politics? And, you know, with its tribune, its amplifier, its, you know, biggest sort of endorser, the Murdoch media, both here and in the US, why have they adopted climate denialism as a values issue, you know? Uh, 
recognising that global warming is, is just a function of physics. Uh, the greenhouse effect is well understood. The climate models that might have been seemed to be speculative 20 years ago have all been proved to be right and in some respects conservative. So, you know, why do we still get this denial of science? And the easy explanation would be that truckloads of gold are being deposited in, you know, Mr Murdoch's bank account by the coal and gas and fossil fuels lobby. I don't think that's, I don't think that's the case. I think it's a, it's a cultural thing. Uh, it's become a values and identity issue, and I struggle to understand why. Because I could understand it when, up to a point, when the cost of going green was quite high, and people would say, "Yeah, okay, okay, I get that. You know, this is bad for the planet, but you know what? I don't want to pay more for my electricity." That's at least comprehensible, if not rational. But now, where it is obvious that renewables plus storage firming, you know, is cheaper than burning coal. There's no question, no, no question at all that we can have lower emissions and lower energy prices. We still get the same opposition. And, you know, you get that, like, truly, wickedly unhinged approach that they had during the bushfires. I mean, that whole campaign in the Murdoch media to try to attribute the cause of the bushfires to us and to say, oh, it's not climate change, not global warming... There's just some bad people lighting fires. <laughs> and, and even after the, uh, the, you know, the head of the Rural Fire Service went out and, and said this is wrong, they kept at it. And so you had this lunacy of having on one page of one of the Murdoch papers, you know, these apocalyptic images of fires and, you know, people huddling on beaches and so forth. And on the other side, there'd be, you know, denunciations of Greta Thunberg and, uh, you know, like Andrew Bolt wanting to suggest that she was, you know, mentally unbalanced and so forth. I mean, horrible personal stuff. I, look, it's, a, it's very, very hard to understand uh, what they're on about. And, you know, it's the, I, I can understand same-sex marriage being a values issue. Uh, I can understand the monarchy v. republic thing being a values issue. But this, why is global warming a values issue? Why, well, Pat, why don't we why don't we say we're going to believe or disbelieve in gravity? I guess the thing is, the disbelievers would you know would be encouraged to jump off a high place and see how it worked. I like it. I'm sure there's more stuff we'll ask around that as well. One one question I was keen to ask: uh, I watched the the movie Bombshell and the the TV series The Loudest Voice, which was all about Fox News and yep. Rupert Murdoch setting setting that up and how much that influenced and controlled US politics. And then about six months ago, we spoke with Kevin Rudd on the podcast as well. And he talked about how the, the Murdoch media was out to get him. And then a, a lot throughout your book, you made references to the, the Murdoch media. Is it true that you know one guy or one family has so much control over the politics and the government of two of the world's biggest countries? Well, they have enormous influence. Um, the influence of the right-wing media, which is almost entirely belongs to Murdoch in Australia, is not as strong as it used to be in terms of the electorate at large because the you know, mainstream media's uh, share of attention has diminished, you know, because of podcasts like this and, you know, social media and so many other competitors. 
but its influence over the LNP, over the coalition, Liberal and National Parties, and um, their members is greater than ever. So this is part of the problem. And see, this you see this, this is part of the problem of the sort of siloing of media so that you get people who, uh, well, I mean, potentially everyone, is in a position to choose their their news silo and choose their own facts. So instead of everyone watching the same media, which are appealing to a broad audience and are trying to, you know, more or less get the facts straight and, you know, present the news and events as it happens, you get this very, very partisan uh, approach. And that has resulted in politicians basically doing the same thing, just telling lies, just making as, you know, in Julia Gillard's words, making shit up. Mm. And um, therein lies the problem. That So if you want to believe that if people want to believe that the three of us are members of the Illuminati <laughs> as part of a only dream. Uh, intergalactic Masonic conspiracy in league with lizards, <laughs> lizards <laughs> to throw Western democracy, there will be a, uh, you know, a Facebook page, a you know, a YouTube channel, there will be a couple of websites, all of which are devoted to proving that. And probably from the minute you broadcast this podcast, <laughs> a few pages will pop up. up. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be exposed. We'll be exposed. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, to be frank, that whole thing, it just pisses me off so much and gets my blood boiling a bit. But like, mm. you know, there's the old saying, seek first, understand and be understood. And if we were to somehow compromise with this right and get both sides listening to each other to logic mm. it probably means we need to listen to them and probably look at the values they've got maybe and think all right like what are you doing right and then but i you know you're in the best position to probably understand what do they get right this this far reactionary right that we can be listening to well i think i mean i think you've got a you know the, the, the here's another quandary right so mm. so donald trump is a billionaire, uh, arch-capitalist, I guess, um, leading the Republican Party, the party of business. He is in favour of, you know, lower corporate taxes. He is uh, sceptical about welfare. He has sort of, a, in many respects, a conventional pro-business um, you know, centre-right agenda. I mean, and I, you know, Lower, lower taxes are certainly something I've tried to achieve too. So, however, what is interesting is that he was able to mobilise the support of white working-class voters whose jobs were had either been lost or were threatened uh, in, you know, Rust Belt states and were threatened by globalisation. And, well, you know... As, as they saw it, right? Mm. And so these are people who historically have voted for the Democratic Party. They're members of trade unions, they're you know, working-class voters, and they voted for Trump. Anyone less likely to advance their interests, you know, you'd, you'd be hard to find, you would think. Mm. And many of his policies were actually shared by the, the populist right which he represented, shared policies with the populist left, i.e. protectionism. You know, Bernie Sanders 
didn't want to go ahead with the Trans-Pacific Partnership and was down with, you know, free trade agreements, as, as indeed was Trump. So the curious thing is, where is the left going wrong in not being able to, you know, appeal to find solutions for uh, people who, you know, working class people who have been, who feel they are on the, you know, wrong end of the modern world, globalisation, technological change and so forth. So I, so I think the answer is what, I don't think the, the policies of the populist right are very attractive but uh, at all, but quite the contrary. But I think what you've got to do is be able to mount a case to people in that situation and say, hang on, what you're being offered by the populists is going to disappoint you, is not going to work, here is the alternative. And so, you know, when I was making the case for free trade here and for things like the, keeping the Trans-Pacific Partnership alive, you know, you'll notice I always said free trade means jobs. Free trade means more Australian jobs and particularly in regional Australia. And that argument, I, I think we won that argument. You know, I think people broadly accepted that. There was some pushback from the unions, but generally people could see, particularly in the regions, that, you know, opening up all those markets, in, in particularly in Asia, uh, was, was clearly going to result in more economic activity and hence employment. And it has, by the way. I've got a, uh, a bit of a false dichotomy here in that they're, they're not mutually exclusive and there's a lot more that goes into it than this. Uh, but from my perspective, I guess, or th this question is sort of like how much of politics is getting stuff done and being effective and having a good ideas and seeing them through and then and how much of politics is playing the game you know, working the room, doing the numbers, the the, poly, the power plays and, and saying the right things to the right people at the right time? Well, it's both, obviously. <laughs> I mean, well, it is because you've got to, I mean, you, you've got to win elections. Uh, you've got to, you know, retain the support of a majority of your party room. And so the political machinations are important. But for me, at least, they were a means to an end. For a lot of people in politics, that's what they love. Hmm. And, you know, I, I think I was better on policy than politics, frankly, but um, I think even my critics would say that. They'd uh, probably say it more loudly than most. But that's the, the one bit about being Prime Minister I absolutely do not miss is the politics. Yeah, it's interesting. At the end of, end of your book, you mentioned how uh, the most important thing in your conclusion is the importance of character. Yeah, which I found really interesting because a lot of the book there was just so many examples of the lack of character being the quality that you know led the person to double cross the person in politics mm -hmm. to end up winning yeah. in, in politics. So, can you um, I guess explain character and maybe distinguish what it is in the real world and the world of, of politics? Well, you know, betrayal, dishonesty, treachery. Uh, these are not just limited to politics or to spy novels. I mean, I think one of the reasons, <laughs> for example, why John le Carre's Cold War espionage novels were always so attractive was that they're all about treachery, betrayal, duplicity, and, you know, people saw that in their own lives, you know, no matter how domestic or mundane they may feel that they are. Um I think, however, in politics, uh, there is not enough attention given or seriousness accorded to telling the truth, whether it is telling the truth in the sense of being deliberate about it 
or being uh, careful about getting the facts straight. So many, so many politicians honestly don't care as long as they get the lineup, and the media doesn't uh, often hold them to account either. Um, very rarely. In fact, I think accountability at the moment's never been lower than it is, which is one of the reasons I think we should have a federal integrity commission. But mm-hmm. um, something, a view I had, I didn't always have, but if I was still PM, it, it would be up, it certainly would have been up and running for quite some time now. Um, yeah, so I think that's the problem, you know, that all too often the media, perhaps the media and the public don't care. I mean, you know, Trump, you know, just makes stuff up. I mean, he says whatever he comes into his mind, he's inconsistent. Uh, he's inaccurate, but his rusted-on supporters still support him, mm. you know. So <laughs> It's interesting. Well, I think like on paper, you're like the uh, ultimate best person to be running a country. You've uh, fought in some of the uh, Australia's biggest legal cases and won. You then moved into the world of, of investment banking and was extremely successful in that in terms of financially and business-wise. Then you're going into politics without the pressure of having to please people. You've already got your status. You've got your power. You've got your, your money. You don't have to do things just because uh, somebody's saying that you have to do them. And then you've gone in there and you've been very successful in, in making some change, but then ultimately you're, you're no longer prime minister. I guess, what, what are some of the things that are either missing from you or missing from other people that, uh, that don't make them as good a leader? Well, look, I mean, ultimately um, the, the challenge that I had was that there was a group in the party that were actively working to bring down the government and, and had been for quite some time. I mean, there's no, no um, secret about that. That's hardly a revelation. And they had their supporters in the right-wing media. I mean, you know, if you, Alan Jones used to bag me every day, sky after dark, bag me every night. It's uh, unbelievable. We listened, to, we listened to one before this and um, the facts, it's not even pulled from the book, some of the things they come up with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, they're just, it's, but I mean, this is while I was Prime Minister though, doing this. So, yeah. you know, you had Abbott, you know, who had said, what, no sniping, no backbiting, no leaking, whatever after he stopped being PM, basically spent three years doing exactly that. <laughs> and, and so the, you know, ultimately um, could I have handled that in another way possibly, but dealing with an internal insurgency that is as unhinged and destructive as that. I mean, you've got to remember these guys were seeking to bring down the government in the expectation that Shorten would win. Right. I mean, as Murdoch said to Kerry Stokes, we've got to get rid of Malcolm. And Stokes says, why? You know, he's doing well. He's, you know, only just a little bit behind Labor on the polls, published polls, but he's way ahead of Shorten. He's in a good position to win, all of which is true, to which Murdoch says, oh, well, three years of Labor wouldn't be so bad. So you see, the craziness of these guys was that they wanted to bring down my government in the expectation the election would be lost so that Abbott could come back as leader of the opposition. And as again, as Murdoch said to me, and the conversation is there, you know, by the way, this is not contested by Murdoch, at least I can't imagine it would be because it was taken <laughs> down beforehand by Clive Matheson. So, you know, we're, we're taken down in very detailed notes. Uh, so this is as it happened. 
And, you know, Murdoch's only reservation about that was that, oh, maybe Abbott wouldn't hold his seat, which turned out to be right. And, and he acknowledged that, uh, you know, Paul Whitaker, uh, the most senior editorial executive in of News Corp in Australia and who is seen as being very close to Lachlan, was actively part of that agenda. I mean, how crazy is this? How crazy is it? But that's, you know, that's, that's what we're dealing with. So, you know, I don't think, I think a lot of this is there's a lot of irrational hatreds and I think what they hated most of all about me was that I was not in their pocket. Mm. This is, you know, I mean, rich people like, particularly billionaires, like to control politicians. They like to think they own them. And uh, they like deference and obedience. And, uh, and you'd, uh, as we were saying, that the, the careerism, I mean, if your whole career and your your own self-importance tied to your career in politics, then, you know, that might be the thing that's, so dear to you and you're not going to let go of and you're happy to compromise more on values compared to yourself when you came in. But after all this, um, Malcolm, do you, do you think we're in good hands now and, and going forward, are things going to improve politically? Uh, so I think both of us, man, we, we haven't been that interested in, in politics whatsoever ourselves, to be brutally honest, our life. It just, it's too predictable what's going on mm. and, um, you just turn it off. Well, you know, I mean, look, I, how's it going? I mean, I think the governments, uh, the Commonwealth and the states and territories have done a pretty good job with the virus, okay? I think that's that there's been some mistakes, particularly with these cruise ships, but, but generally I think they've done a good job. But I regret to say, difficult though this has been, this is the easy part. Because the way to deal with the pandemic is obviously, you know, some quarantines, lockdowns, social isolation. Some, I mean, people have been dealing with epidemics like that for, you know, hundreds of years, thousands of years. So that's one degree of doing that or other of doing that. And the countries that moved faster have had the, you know, less bad, uh, uh, you know, experience. But the real problem is getting the economy started again. And the real problem is that so many people are unemployed, so many businesses have been severely damaged, there are many businesses that won't recover, the people that have been hit hardest are the people on low incomes and younger people. So, uh, I mean, there's going to have to be an increase in in welfare uh, expenditure, obviously, there already is, but, you know, that's not the answer. You've got to get the economy moving again. What do you do? with the how do you get the tourism sector moving again if the borders aren't open? What does the university sector do if foreign students are reluctant to come? Um, what do you do with uh, the hospitality sector? What do, you, what do you do with bricks and mortar retail? I mean, it's been doing it hard for a while, but, you know, by the time this lockdown ends, everyone will have had, um, you know, will have been doing more online retailing than they've, done ever done before and a lot of people who hadn't done it before will have done it and found it pretty convenient so you know i mean even down to the to to what i'm doing right so we decided to launch this book uh, on april the 20th last year and you know a book is quite a long process you know a lot of editing and typesetting and then printing it's not it, it's something that that's got a lot of lead time and 
we thought very carefully about um, delaying publication. But frankly, the publisher needed the cash flow, the printer had to be paid, the, there are a lot of booksellers that were desperate for something to sell. And we, I, you know, finally thought, oh, well, you know, let's do it. Mm. And we couldn't do a book tour. So this has been an entirely virtual book tour, but it, it, you know, sales have been good. They, I guess they would have been better if more bookshops had been open, obviously. But um, that then says, so I think everyone in the publishing industry will be saying, well, maybe we should be selling books in a different way. And every industry is doing that. I can't tell you how many business meetings I've had where people are saying, gosh, this really works. I mean, why are we getting on a plane and flying <laughs> to Melbourne or Brisbane, you know, or Singapore? Well, why aren't we just doing more of this? Mm-hmm. And so what's that going to mean for aviation? So, so you know, there's a lot of it, it's these uh, sectoral impacts that I think are going to be very significant. And then the question is, where do the new jobs come from? And that's why, you know, getting back to one of my hobby horses, you have to have a real commitment to enterprise, innovation, because honestly, people have got to come up with new ideas, new businesses uh, to provide the opportunities of employment as the old ones, you know, get overtaken by events. I think it's going to be fascinating to see how everything turns out on the other side of this. Uh, well, what think- do you guys think? Tell, tell me what you think. Well, I think it's a obviously in the very, very short term, it's a big challenge. And then I'm sure a lot of people have been negatively affected by it. But I think over the longer term, it just it forces a lot of the things that were probably slowly happening. It forces yeah. that, accelerates it a lot quicker. Mm. Yeah. Well, look, look, let me drill into that a bit because I, I agree with you. I think there are a number of existing trends that are going to accelerate, you know, e commerce, you know, virtual meetings, et cetera, et cetera. That's going to have implications for commercial property, both, you know, retail space, office space, et cetera. But what do you think are the trends that might be disrupted or or diverted or reversed by this? For me, I think it's a, it's speculative and it's an opportunity, but it's the, um, well, there's inevitable trend before towards sustainable technologies. Yeah. Provided there's the world does enough stimulus in mm. in that area. There's a huge opportunity to accelerate that to get to zero carbon yep. faster. And if we do, this could be a net positive. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's I that's interesting. The even though I'm told that even though the uh, price of oil has come down significantly, because of, you know, big oversupply because demand's been crushed, and that means gas is cheaper too. There is, from a consumer point of view, uh, stronger interest than ever in electric vehicles uh, and batteries. So is this pandemic a case of Mother Nature in the form of this virus biology really giving us a slap across the face? Does that remind us that the other big existential threat which is even more severe, much more severe, of climate change is a case of physics, you know, giving us a slap across the face and saying, you know, really, how many more million hectares of forest needs to be burnt before you 
idiot humans work out that you've got a problem. It would be like the ultimate case of anti-fragility and that everything's gone so crazy and then Mother Nature's just turned around and said, let me fix this for you, just a, a temporary shake-up and then everyone can get back to doing things how it should be done. Yeah, well, I hope, you know, I hope, you know, I hope the penny does drop. But, I mean, so far politically in Australia, because of this bizarre dynamic inside the coalition, I, I'm worried that we won't see that move. I think for me on a smaller scale uh, is just like more of a, the, on the individual level of the companies that were previously thought that FaceTime was the answer that if people aren't in the office, they're not going to do anything mm. where they realize that if everyone's at home for two months, I actually still do work. So I think oh, yeah. that, that idea, and I know in your book, you mentioned that in the early days of you running your own firms, you were focused on results and output, not time. And I, I think whilst most bosses might say that, they still think, they couldn't trust people to actually work from home, but now they've, yeah, well, they've been forced. I, Lucy and I, I think largely because we were working together and we wanted to be able to spend time at home and so forth with the kids, uh, we were all, we were actually, looking back on it, we were quite advanced in that area. I mean, I really, mm. uh, FaceTime at the office, I just always thought was pointless, you know, mm. just for the sake of being there. And, you know, uh, the technology wasn't nearly as good in those days. Mm. Yeah, of course. The um, and you know, Zoom meetings. When I got to Goldman Sachs, uh, you know, there's a couple of stories in there about that. I just could not believe the way people, particularly the young people, felt they needed to stay till one a.m. in the morning. This is crackers. Because you know, I tell you, I tell you a little insight there. I don't. I don't think I've got this bit in the book, but it's it's a true story. So I was doing a big deal in New York, and I was about to close it. And I had some couple of my team who, you know, younger, more junior people that are analysts and associates were getting some, some pitch books prepared, you know, with a whole lot of numbers and so forth. Anyway, um, they turned up to this meeting I don't know, half an hour before the meeting with the books and I had a look at them and the numbers were wrong. And I said, this is terrible. How, what, the, what, what happened? Oh, we haven't had any sleep for three nights. I said, oh. <laughs> wow. I mean, of course, if you haven't had any sleep for three nights, I'm amazed you can stand up. <laughs> and anyway, I ended up having to sort of freelance the numbers on a whiteboard, you know, which, and I'm not the world's champion <laughs> mental arithmetic, I can tell you, so that was not easy. But, um, but as a young lawyer, as a barrister, you know, if I stood up in court at 10 o'clock and stumbled through my brief and the judge said, Mr Turnbull, you know, what's wrong with you? Have you lost the plot? And I said, oh, Your Honour, I, I didn't get any sleep last night. He'd say, that's your problem, not mine, <laughs> you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> your, your client maybe ought to find someone else to represent them. So I think the um, if you've got a focus, a clear focus on output, uh, it, it, it's it's exactly equivalent in in business of being focused on the customer. You know, this is the critical thing. You know, for what are we trying to do? Then, if you work out what your objective is, then you, the next question is, what is the you know most efficient way of of getting there, of delivering it? But yeah, you're right. I mean, FaceTime, as in FaceTime at the office, as opposed to FaceTime the application, I think is. Um, is going to be under a lot of pressure. I mean, if you've got a firm like a, you know, I don't know, an accounting firm, a consultancy, a law firm, and you currently have 
three floors of an office building, wouldn't you be thinking now, maybe I'd be better off having one Definitely. and having, you know, some hot desks, cubicles, whatever, because people are not going to be here all the time. And the other thing too is if this, you know, virus persists and, and we still remain alert to it or future pandemics, are we going to, in a risk mitigation strategy, going to be saying, well, I don't think I should have one building with, you know, 10,000 employees in it or 5,000 employees in it. I think I should split it up, mm. you know, have a dozen buildings, dozen, you know, offices, and they'd probably be half as big because people will be working remotely. And, you know, with ubiquitous broadband, does it really matter? I mean, if you, you know, you could have in on one end of an office, you can have a big screen, high definition, which shows what's happening in the office on the other side of town or, you know, the other side of the world even, theoretically. I like it. Uh, you know, capabilities like this, which you needed to have not so long ago, very expensive proprietary equipment from people like Cisco and very expensive uh, broadband infrastructure are now cheap and in many cases free. So what this disruption, this pandemic has caused is all of these um, applications and capabilities, et cetera, that have been there, suddenly people have used them to an extent they never have before. I mean, I have done more video conferencing in the last month than I have in the entirety of my life before. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and, and, and so people will say, well, yeah. this, is, this is the new normal. So, yeah, it's a, there's, there's a lot of disruption. I like it. As a, as a complete non sequitur here, one of my favorite books I read in 2019 was Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Oh, yeah. Which That's was a car's great favorite. Is, <laughs> well, yeah. ultimately, it was a you know, Roman emperor and it was his own personal diaries that was never really meant to be a, a book as such. At the very start of this interview, you sort of mentioned that you weren't very good at in, you know, personal introspection, but really some of my favorite parts of your book was actually taken from your own diaries. Yes. And so obviously you had, there's uh, some hint of personal introspection there. Is, is diarizing and, and journaling something important to you? That it's yeah, obviously it, it is. I, I, I haven't done it consistently every day of my life, but uh, I have done it in large chunks of time. And it is, a, it's, it is a phenomenal thing to do, you know, because you will find, or I've found, you know, when I go back and I find diary entries from, you know, I mean, I've got a whole set of diaries from the mid-80s uh, from a period of about six months in the mid, in the 80, 86, 87, that sort of period. And there's stuff in there that I have no independent recollection of at all. <laughs> and yet, you know, and yet sometimes... Totally happened. Yeah. Memories do come back. Yeah, but it absolutely happened. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. So diaries are diaries are very valuable, um, and you know certainly very helpful. Writing a book like this, mm. absolutely. So uh, as we wrap it up now, moving toward the end, uh, what, what's next for you, Malcolm? Uh, you still got quite a few years left in here in uh, in doing a lot for this country. You, you mentioned it. You know, forty seven years old. You've made your money. You don't have to go out there and just mm. make more money. You can now focus on just helping. Mm. the world in some kind of way what's that look like uh now for you 
Well, I mean, I'm, I remain very committed to and interested in the whole um, climate change agenda. So how I will play a role in that, you know, remains to be seen, but I'm so, I'll certainly use what, you know, ever megaphone I have as a former PM uh, to promote action in that area. Um, you know, I'm obviously still a Republican. I'm still, I've never wavered from my Republicanism, but, you know, I think mm. there's a timing issue there we talked about. Um, in terms of business, uh, my, my keenest interest, I mean, I'm doing work with some big companies as well, but my keenest interest is honestly in innovation, Australian innovation and technology, and I've been with Luce actively investing in that area since I got out of politics, more, you know, more so in the last six months or so. And, you know, there's some fantastic Australian companies. Uh, we, you know, we, we, our technology innovation venture capital ecosystem is at a scale it's never been before. I like to think the National Innovation and Science Agenda had a hand in that. Certainly everyone in the industry thinks it did, which is good. And that innovation agenda, while the current, you know, government doesn't like to talk about innovation very much, it's a sort of a boo-boo word because they think it'll frighten people, uh, it is absolutely the key, you know. You have got to promote innovation technology aggressively because that is how you are able to keep creating the new jobs that will keep you competitive you know absent that you you know you just run the risk of falling off the back of the pack and you know that's that means we're less prosperous that means the government has less revenues that means we have less of a you know social welfare safety net it means you know everything it, it, it <laughs> it's bad for everything mm. so um but still i'd rather be in australia than anywhere else so you know there's no no cause for uh, too much gloom or any gloom really Fantastic. Well, we'll leave it at that. Thank you so okay, much for, for joining much, us today. Yeah. All righty. Thank you so much. Thank you, gentlemen. Bye. Cheers. Mm-hmm.